John and Greg, that was fantastic, amazing. Apparently youth and intellect have now found its way into the generosity movement, which is intimidating to those of us who possess neither. Um, so watch your back, guys. Watch your back. You know, my second senior year of college, I thought about applying to Harvard Business School, but I saved the stamp, sent a letter to my mother, told her how much I loved her and that my academic challenges were not her responsibility or her fault. I grew up in a great Christian home. I uh, grew up in a place called Wichita Falls, Texas. How many of you, can we turn up the lights in here? Because we're going to have some table discussions and we're going to have some fun. There you go. I knew there were people out there. Um, and my dad, you know, if you lived in Wichita Falls, Texas, the oil and gas business was something that you were familiar with. My dad did a lot of public speaking when he was young. And he told me that speaking in public was kind of like drilling for oil. If you don't strike something interesting pretty quick, you need to stop boring. <laughs> so here's what we're doing. We're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about planning as it relates to the financial wealth that we have. And we're going to talk about progeny. Now, that's a, that's a Harvard word, progeny. That's a big word. We didn't use that word when I was growing up. And the reason I'm using that word, it really means those that are going to come behind you. And so there are different people in different situations here in the audience. So there are grandparents, there are parents, there are those that are not married, that have nieces and nephews and others. So when you think when I talk about progeny or those that are coming behind you, it's a, it's a wide spectrum of folks. It's anybody that you might choose to bless with wealth. So I want to start off telling you a quick story about Charlie and Margie. Uh, you have some handouts at your table, I hope, or they're on their way. Are they there? Okay. Um, and because this is not that interesting, there's a lot of blanks that you have to fill in, so you're going to have to listen to what I said, especially you type A people. <laughs> Got to fill in every one of those blanks. Charlie and Margie, Charlie uh, was a businessman in the southeastern United States that uh, I had a privilege of working with, and Charlie was um, a very driven bordering on workaholic, and he, he just knew how to make things work, and he was very successful, and he was approached by someone who wanted to, to buy his business. It's actually one of his competitors that wanted to get him out of the market because he had started to grow rapidly, and they were concerned about that, and they approached Charlie, and they offered him $18 million for his business, which was way beyond anything he ever imagined would happen. He and Margie had good financial planners, and so they sat down, and he had been a saver all his life, so he had plenty of stuff saved up, and the financial planner really told him that if he wanted to, he could give it all away. I mean, he had enough, um, and so they decided uh, that they were going to do the 14-4 is what he called it. We're going to do 14-4. We're going to give away $14 million, and we're going to keep four. We're going to keep, he and his wife were going to keep one, and they were going to give a million dollars to each of their three kids. I knew their kids, great kids, all were married at the time. I think two of them had, and maybe all three of them had kids at this point. And Charlie and Margie were so excited, they decided to go ahead and basically give their kids their inheritance in advance. So they had their first ever family meeting to tell their kids about this incredible gift they were going to receive and the money that they as a family were going to be able to give away. And they sat down across from their kids, and Charlie told them this story, he was so excited and he got a blank stare. He was shocked. The kids said basically nothing. In fact, as the conversation started to go along, he found out that the kids basically thought that they were stealing their inheritance from them. And these were good kids, Christian kids, grown up in a Christian church, givers themselves. And uh, it really took them back. Charlie and Margie were 
uh, bordering on devastating. The kids didn't even say thank you. It was so, they were so shocked. They had an entitlement mentality that whatever their dad made really belonged to them whenever he decided to leave this earth. So we want to talk a little bit about how to avoid that kind of a situation, how to think through wealth and your children. And um, so let's just dive in. I'll give you one more way to think about how we deal with our wealth when we think about God's ownership, and that is, is that we really are trustees. And a trustee does not get to access everything in the trust. In fact, in our situation, the trustor is God himself, and he actually is also the beneficiary as well. And he puts us in the middle, and he entrusts us with all sorts of different things. I'm going to be talking mostly about financial things, but you're going to find that financial things that we steward, transactional things, relational things, they are all highly connected, very, very connected. So I'm not trying to be all-encompassing in our conversation this morning, but our goal is that we really want God to look at us and say he trusts us with what he has entrusted to us so that we can shepherd it well. We're going to talk about planning, just fundamental, basic planning. So if you grab your notes, here we go. There are three keys to planning. The first one is that planning is not about money. It's about much, much more than that. We steward things much more than just about money. And so when you're going through the process of planning, it's important to realize that it's not just about money. Second thing is, is that we've seen that people who are well-planned give more, and they give more wisely. People that are not well-planned, well, they kind of get controlled by the stuff that they have versus the other way around. And finally, and we've heard about this on several occasions, we're going to talk a little bit about finish lines in just a few minutes. The first thing, though, that I want to bring up is that on the foundation of the planning process, it's very important as a family, this is something Charlie and Margie just really missed on, really, really missed this, is that they never, ever talked to their kids about the values they had as a family. They just, they just never thought to do that. And, you know, the values that we have as families are really, really a fascinating thing to process with your family. Very healthy conversation. So I encourage folks to, to, to process through that with their family. What is it that we value? Why do we value these things? We've even heard some presentations about the fact that some of the things that we value come from the hard things that we've been through. But processing this as a family is important. And also I encourage folks to have a mission statement as a family. Kind of set up some guardrails so everybody kind of knows where we're going and why we're going there. But usually when we think of estate planning, we think of this. The orderly distribution of one's wealth into fees and commissions. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, the sad thing is there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, this is not something that people enjoy doing. Um, but um, it, is, it is something that's very, very important. A couple of other things with regards to perspective. First of all, when you're thinking about planning, beware of the tax tail wagging the dog. Um, most professional advisors are going to lead with tax kind of advice. Um, they're not going to be thinking through what's really at the heart of why you should be planning. And also remember that wealth transfer planning is a process. It's not a point in time. So it's, there are events that happen on a regular basis. But I will tell you that my experience has been that there are very few people I know that can go through the planning process without help. Uh, it's just not something we're really good at. I wished that uh, Charlie's advisors had started having family meetings with their kids long before this big announcement. It's good that they had the announcement and had the meeting because I will tell you, years later now, there's tremendous health in their family. Their kids have completely come around, but it might not have ended up that way. 
So we're going to do our first little mini table exercise. And I want each of you to write down just the first names of your advisors. It could be your accountant. It could be your financial planner, insurance, lawyer, whatever it is. So take a minute. I'm trusting that right now there's something in your hand and you're actually writing names down. And then after you write those names, I, there, for some folks, there's a lot of names that they write down. I want you to underline the names of the folks that really give you counsel, that are not just transactional advisors that you're just kind of buying something from, but that really give you counsel. And then I want you to look at the list, and I want you to circle the names of those that are underlined that you know for sure are like-minded from a faith perspective. It's amazing how how we will seek counsel from something that is as much a matter of worship as how we handle our finances and not have like-minded counsel. So my first challenge to you, which can be very difficult for many of us, is to get like-minded counsel. If you don't, they will push you in a non-like-minded direction. It's just the way that we're, that we're wired, that our advisors are wired. Okay, let's talk a little bit about, we talked about finish lines. Many people have mentioned this. Um, when you're thinking through, and let me just simplify, think something about finish lines just real quick. A finish line is really nothing more than a budget. I mean, we all need to be having budgets. I know that many of us don't live on a budget, but a, a finish line, you can have an annual finish line. You want to spend $100,000 a year. And then you can extrapolate that out, which is what you guys were talking about. And that's a, that's a lifetime finish line. So it's like a budget. But there's another kind of finish line, and it's the finish line of your life. So you, it is going to, there's, there's, so there's two kinds of finish lines. So I want to encourage you to think through this. Now, I will tell you that it's very, very vital that husbands and wives, if that's the case, think through this together, Okay. This happens much more rarely than you would think. And the reason is this is so important is because there is such tremendous differences between men and women. You can write that down. That's <laughs> Okay, in fact, there is a whole, I don't know what the word, I was going to say gaggle. There's a whole group of, of women doing well that are here. So, yeah, a little, little, little raise your hand. Yeah, woo, yeah. Okay, I, I said that because I wanted to point out where they all are. Okay. Let's see. Now, we, as men, we know that they're in control, but now they're letting us know that they're in control. Okay. I will tell you that the women doing well folks have told me that one difference between men and women is that a woman's mind is kind of like a superhighway interchange. I mean, coming from every direction, up lower and higher levels, it just works that way. And I'm not, tell I'm not lying. This is what I was told, that a man's mind is like a single-lane dirt road. <laughs> True story. So I thought about that on my single lane dirt road. And I decided I think they're right. But also when we talk about needs and wants, um, men and women, we process this kind of stuff very differently. I mean, you know, the average man says 20,000 words a day. The average, wor the average woman, 50,000 with gusts up to 100,000. <laughs> So men, they need to talk it out, okay? This is very important. Also, with regards to how we do stuff, very different. You know, a woman needs four things. She will go out and buy six. She will return two and exchange one. How many does she have when she's done? 
Four, that's exactly right. That was every, it was a woman that answered every, that. Men were going, still kind of finding his way on that single lane dirt road right there. Just for a second. But you send your man to the grocery store or he goes to Home Depot and you need four or five things. How many is he coming back with? Yeah, there's no telling. He's not going, there's no, so shopping, this, that, that the, the four, six, one, four thing, that's, that's what shopping is. I and mean, that's just the way women do that. Men don't do that like that. Also, the thing that just boggles the minds of men is the fact that when women need a new outfit or a dress, what else do they need? Shoes. It's unbelievable. Okay? These things multiply like rabbits. Okay? Now, those of us men who are less wise than we ought to be will actually bring up this point with our wives. And then we will go out and buy a boat. But we'll call it a family investment, okay? <laughs> Even if it's a bass boat, okay? <laughs> okay, so no elbowing here. That, that, there's no guilt by proxy. Come on. Goodness gracious. So we got to process, th process these things together. It's very, very important. Uh, one of the thing is, is that I want you to notice, is the screen, did it go away? It's down here, okay. We heard Randy talk about this last night. Um, the decisions that we're going to make with regards to our stuff during our life represent a very, very short period of time. But the results and the impact of the decisions that we make with regards to our stuff have eternal consequences. And so that's why I put the, the long arrow is after. So it, it looks like the top part is the long part, but really it's what's after that finish line that's the short part. And as we all know, life is short, right? And I thought I would help illustrate this by going to deathclock.com. Deathclock.com is a website you can go and you can figure out when you're going to die. You moan. You put in your age. Uh, they ask you if you're optimistic, pessimistic, neutral, uh, your, your body mass index. They ask if you drink. And they ask specifically how much you drink. They ask where you live. And so I... I went to deathclock.com and I, I entered in a few people that are here with us. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> y'all make plans, I assume it's in Boulder is where we'll come on the, in 2024. So y'all can put that on your Wednesday, March the 9th, 2024. You're gonna write that down. Anybody nervous about what's coming up next? <laughs> I really just want to point out one to you. Huo, where are you? Back in this area somewhere. I love you. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm just thankful that Huo's still with us. Okay? I'm very thankful. As a matter of fact, um, I think that uh, we, need to, we need to thank Hugh and the McClellan Foundation for what they're doing for all this. So. Yeah, you shouldn't be really that concerned. You know, last week, the oldest person in the world died. You may hear this. She was 117 years old in Japan. There are now four people left on earth that were born in the 1800s. How about that? And the oldest person now lives in Arkansas. And I kid you not, her name is Gertrude. Okay. And they asked Gertrude, what's the secret to your longevity? And I'm not kidding. She said, tasty food and good sleep. So, Hugh, I want to encourage you to enjoy the brunch that we're going to have. 
and then go take a nap. Because <laughs> we, we, we need you here for as long as possible. Um, and again, you know, the end could come for us at any moment, I mean, any day, at any time. Um, and it's, it's important to keep in mind the brevity of life. Okay, a few more things with regards to planning. There's three questions that we ask. Why do I possess what I possess? It is the foundational question. What should my objectives be with regards to these four things? Accumulating wealth, preserving it, saving it, utilizing it, consuming it, and then transitioning it and passing it on. And we've heard all about those four things during our time here. And then the last thing that you should process is, now how do I accomplish that after I've figured out those things? In traditional planning, though, it flips it upside down, okay? And that's why having a like-minded advisor is so important because advisors just instinctively will go to the how right out of the chute. And they will do, they will try to get as much to every one of your progeny as equally as possible at the lowest tax cost. That's it. It's, it's really pretty much that simple for the most part. But that is not the way we need to process this. So we are, if you'll see, you've got a book on your table called Family Money. It, it can help you think through this process of planning. And I encourage you to read it before you go to your advisor. It could save you a lot of money if you'll process through this before you go to them. Uh, they probably will not help you through this process themselves. Okay, here's another little table test. So this is just for men. So men, I want you to take your pen. I can't really see you, so I'm hoping you're being obedient here. We have a problem with that. And I want you to, in very tiny numbers, write the age of your wife on this sheet of paper, okay? <laughs> kind of cover it up a little bit if necessary. Okay, then I want you to slide it over to her and make sure you're right, okay? And then I want to ask you a question. What do you think is the average age of a widow in the United States of America? 57 years old. One-third of widows in the United States are 45 and under. So, guys, the odds of you being around after, after she's gone are extremely low. Not only does she really control things now, but she's totally going to control things <laughs> later. Okay, And we really need to get our house in order. So this is just kind of a charge to the men who are married here. You, you've got to get your house in order, if for no other reason because you love your woman. Let's talk about progeny now, kids. How do, we, how do we think through this issue? So here are nine essential vitamins to think through this. And a primary question that we need to answer is, well, how much do we think we should pass on to our kids, our grandkids, nieces and nephews, those other folks? How do we do that? And I will assure you that it's much better to figure this out in your living room than it is in a lawyer's office after you're gone, okay? So here are some principles, some things that can help process this. And the first one is God's Word. This is one verse of many that are very, very applicable. And I'm going to read it out loud. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of wisdom is this. Wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. And I'm not going to talk about that, but you're going to see that the, that... that the pa that passage of Scripture and the principles behind it are going to follow in these other things that we look at, these other vitamins, if you will. So the next thing is to talk about transferable capital. The f there are three types of capital that you can transfer to another generation or to another individual. The first one, and the most important, is spiritual. It's really the, the understanding and the application of God's Word in our lives, the gospel itself. 
and we, we can pass that on. The second is what I call character capital, and we all know what character capital is. Honesty, patience, discernment, all those things that we want to see in those that are coming behind us. And I will tell you from my experience, and this is important, is that a good work ethic is usually necessary for good character capital. And that will become more important. And the third is financial capital. And I kind of made these circles the size they are because of the importance of them. And it's really an order. Uh, and that's kind of going back to that verse in Ecclesiastes. Spiritual capital passed on, character capital, then we're going to talk about financial capital. So how many grandparents do we have? Or even people that kind of act like a grandparent to someone else, even a niece or nephew, okay? Let me tell you, it's just on the spiritual capital side. There is something uh, unique about a grandparent, or let's say maybe it's a non-parent and their ability to speak into younger people. Because the grandparents, you know, they can take the kids and then they can give them back and they can walk away. And the parents can't do that. The parents have to deal with the, the tough stuff with regards to the kids. So grandparents have a unique ability to, to pour spiritual capital into their grandkids. And their grandkids will listen to their grandparents. They don't always listen to their parents, as we all are well aware. We have been there and done that. So I want to really challenge folks that are grandparents to think about, between now and the end of the year, telling your story to your grandchildren. Pour that spiritual capital into them. And even the character capital and how you develop that in your life. One of the things that's, that's kind of fun to think about is how these capitals interact with each other. So we're going to take some table time and we're going to answer this question. How can you use financial capital to build spiritual and character capital in your progeny? How can you use your financial capital to build uh, spiritual and character capital in those that are coming behind you? Huddle around your table, get a table leader, because we're actually going to share some of these out loud with the whole group. So take a few minutes and think about that. So let's talk about the paradigm of transferable capital. I'm going to shoot through this pretty quickly. And it's kind of a, it's an analytical approach to thinking through how to deal with wealth and those that are coming behind you. But here's the first one. Spiritual capital is necessary for the development of true, and I would say true and lasting character capital. Next, a strong work ethic is usually necessary to build strong character capital. I put the word usually in there because probably somewhere there's an exception to that rule. I have never met that exception so far. And it's very important. If spiritual and character capital are strong and tested, it may be advisable to impart financial capital. Are you all tracking with me in the handout? Am I going too fast? Yes. Okay, sorry about that. Ah. <sighs> Take a deep breath. Yeah, I know. I am. I got a GT right now on the dirt road, apparently. We're humming along here. If spiritual and character capital are not strong and tested, it is typically not advisable to impart financial capital. That goes back to the Ecclesiastes 7 passage and, and many others. Here's another one. Do no harm. Interesting quote by Socrates of all people. What mean you fellow citizens that you turn every stone to scrape wealth together but take so little care of your children to whom one day you will relinquish it all? It sounds like he was reading Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Um, and he may have been. But as we learned earlier, uh, 
for the men in the room that are married, you can put the word spouse in there as well because you're going to relinquish it all to your spouse in all likelihood as well. Um, one of the things we talked about being a trustee, you know, if I'm a trustee of a trust and then I decide to stop being the trustee and I pass it off to a successor trustee, I'm not typically responsible for the acts of that successor trustee if I had no involvement with it. I personally believe that that's not true with the, the, being a trustee with our wealth. I believe if we decide to pass on our wealth to someone else as the successor trustee, that's called an inheritance, I think that we are held responsible for how they use those funds, and we will give an account of how they do it. So let's ask some hard questions with regards to passing on wealth. Here they are. Will this transfer of wealth build spiritual capital in my progeny, in my children or grandchildren? Will it build character capital in my children or grandchildren? Will it negatively impact a strong work ethic in my children or progeny? And will it increase their standard of living without them having to work for it? And then I added an extra one at the bottom because I've seen this happen so many times. Will this give Satan an opportunity to bring calamity? And usually I see the calamity among siblings. And I may talk a little bit about that in just a minute. I worked with one gentleman who owned a couple of dozen Burger Kings, and he had other businesses as well. And we were working through this, and he actually came to me with four questions he decided he was going to ask himself. He was 45 years old at the time, and here were his questions. How much of my net worth did I receive as an inheritance before I turned 45? What do you think the answer to that question was? Zero. And that is kind of, there, there may be somewhat of a magic age to that. It could be a little younger in some cases, but I'm going to talk a little bit about passing on your inheritance early. Was I given the opportunity to develop a strong work ethic prior to receiving an inheritance? And the answer to that question was yes. Was the development of this work ethic important to the development of his character? And it was extremely important. And would I want to possibly deprive my children of this important aspect of life? Now that's, that's a tough question. Uh, especially it's tough when, you know, you just want to do everything you can. Um, that's our reflex action. And these were his questions. Um, one other quick caveat for grandparents again, it is rarely ever wise to pass money to your grandchildren and bypass their parents. Very, very rarely is that a wise thing to do, but I will tell you that's a typical normal estate planning technique because you can save taxes doing it. Um, but parents are responsible for their children. So be very, very careful. There are some exceptions to that rule, but they're very, very rare. Timing. It is better to leave less rather than more early on. It's a, there's a great opportunity with your children, grandchildren, anybody that you think you're going to pass wealth onto is to go ahead and test the situation with, with small amounts. And we have personal wealth and we have charitable wealth. And you can do both. You can give them money that they can spend, and you can also give them money that they can give away. And I encourage folks to do this on a regular basis and do it as a family together, as we've kind of heard as some descriptions during the conference. And then watch and see how they do. Generational generosity can build spiritual and character capital as well. So as a family, if you will practice generational generosity, it can help build those things. You will learn maybe as much about your children and grandchildren as anything else you can do is to engage them in that process. Now, I will tell you that uh, Charlie and Margie did not do this at all. They, it, it never really even crossed their minds 
They were very generous. Their kids were generous. They never thought about uh, engaging their kids in this process ever. And, um, and it came back to bite them. And then we heard Nathan Barnhart tell his story. And how cool was that? Six years old, the Hummer thing. I mean, they are engaged with generational generosity in that family in a significant way. And you could tell, I don't know if Nathan's is still here, but you could just see in his countenance that that has made an impact in his life. That's exciting. Necessities. We just heard this. This is redundant. Don't ask how much can we leave our kids. Ask them how much will they need. Are y'all keeping up? And this is another theme. You know, when, you, when you're the last speaker at a conference, pretty much everything I'm saying, I realize, has already been said before in one form or fashion. Um, but this is just kind of a wrap-up, to wrap it all up. Here is a big theme of this conference, and it's the word contentment. We've heard it many, many times, many times. And our goal is to leave behind kids or grandkids or nieces and nephews that are content whatever the circumstances. Man, there's, that, that is a heritage right there. Russ Crossan, who's the head of Ronald Blue & Company in Atlanta, this is what he says. If we produce kids that are productive and content, it almost doesn't matter how much we live, leave them. But if our children are consumptive and discontent, we won't be able to leave them enough. They will fly right through it and with, with amazing speed. So when we're thinking about passing on our wealth, one of the things that I often encourage folks is, once you figure out how much is the right amount to pass on to your kids, you've gone through this process, the next question is, at what age, when should we give our kids their inheritance? And I'm seeing more and more folks as they process through this, giving their children their inheritance before they pass away, before the matriarch and patriarch pass away. Now, I would say that probably the age of 45 is a, is a pretty good benchmark. There are some kids that are more mature than that, but some parents realize, you know, what good is it going to do my kids if I, if I pass on wealth to them, you know, when they're in their late 50s, early 60s? All the major needs that they might have that I could help with were much, much earlier. And so one thing to do is to ask, should I go ahead and pass this on now? And then it's done. Everything else we have, we're going to give away. So all of the issues that come with passing on wealth generationally can just completely disappear. Just a thought. Equality with great care. Tackle the equality issue with great care. Uh, this is uh, a quote by Randy that I think is rarely ever followed when people think about passing on wealth to their children. Very, very rarely. And it says this, the question is not what is fair, but what is right. The real questions are, will your children need your money and will they use it wisely? Will they need your money and will they use it wisely? And as you can see, if the answer to the first question is no, that they don't need your money, then you shouldn't feel compelled to leave it to them. If the answer to the second question is no, you should feel compelled not to leave it to them. And that's tough because kids are different. If the answers markedly differ from child to child, you should deal differently with them according to those real differences. And that takes a lot of thought. I would encourage you to not wait till you're dead, though, to leave things unequally to your children. <laughs> that will bring calamity. Guarantee it. I've seen it over and over again. And that's why communication, while you're 
alive and probably with the help of some kind of a, of a planner of some kind to help you in this journey, very, very vital. I was with a family not long ago, and the matriarch and patriarch were sharing about all this and what they were thinking through, and their oldest child said, take me out. I have more than I need. Uh, they were successful. They were a physician. They said, let's just get this off the table. Just completely take me out. Whatever you were going to pass on to me, give it away. How's that? And I said to the mom and dad after we were done, I said, now that's a kid that deserves an inheritance right there. And, um, and it's true. This is what we want for our kids, our grandkids, the nieces, nephews. When we think about consuming, we want to see, to see them live frugally. When we want to see wealth creation, we want them to work diligently. And with regards to contributing, we want them to give generously. If we can pass those three things on to those that are coming behind us, we will have done well. Okay, so now, if you're seated at a table with your spouse and you're not seated next to them, you need to rearrange. I've noticed that there are sometimes these tables get together with the men on one side and the women on the other. That's not going to work right now. So everybody stand up. And we're going to take a test. I want the people that are here as couples to sit, to turn their chairs back to back to each other. Pick up your chair, turn it around. I know, I got it. Yeah. Now I want you to know that if you're here and you're either not with your spouse or you're single, obviously you don't need to turn your chair around. But you do need to think through these questions. And you can ask yourself the question, do I even know the answers to these questions? So everybody's back to back. If you're here with your spouse, and keep in mind if you're here and if you're single or you're not with your spouse, keep in mind that progeny is not just children and grandchildren. It may be for you, nieces and nephews, or other people that are important in your life that you may elect to bless with wealth. All right, everybody ready? If you're standing up, you're not ready. Okay, get out, get something to write with and write on. No cheating, no peeking. I've only seen one significant marital argument break out doing this, right there in the room. So here are the questions I want you to think through very quickly and write the answers down too. How much did you give to charity last year as a family? How much did your family give to charity last year? How much did you give to your progeny last year? For many of you, that will be your children and grandchildren. For others, it could be nieces and nephews. How much did you give? What is your family's net worth? This could be a moment of discovery for some of us. How much would you pass on to your progeny if you or the two of you, whichever it is, if you died today? How much would they get? Are your children and grandchildren treated equally in your estate plan? Or it may be nieces and nephews, those that you will pass on well. Are they treated equally? And then the tough question, do you think they should be? And finally, how long ago, has it, how long ago was it when you updated your estate plan? Because we talked about it being a process. Okay, how are we doing? Okay, here's the fun part. 
I want you to turn your chairs around and share your answers with each other. Gentlemen, 95% of the time, she is going to ask the question, what do I do now? Because you're going to be gone. What do I do now? And I encourage you to press into this so that the answer to that question is, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do now. I am well prepared and I'm surrounded by the right people. There will be a family meeting. Guarantee it. You just don't want it to happen in your lawyer's office and your chair be the empty one. That's not where you want your first family meeting to occur. Communication is critical. So I just want to thank you. It's always a privilege to speak to this group. I hope and pray that um, whatever we've said will enhance the joy of your experience in your journey of generosity. Thank you.